Hey, this is Nathan Albertson. I'm here with Jacob Benzel. Hey, Jake. Hello, Nathan. We are here to talk to you before the program begins today about something that would actually mean quite a bit to me and would mean a quite a bit to Jake and to Brandon, I dare say. And what is that, Jake? Well, in order to keep up with the ongoing costs of this show and to make this show better, we have launched a Patreon page, which is an opportunity for you guys to support the work of the bookening and very low levels of giving, just monthly giving, $1, $4, $10, $25 a month, $25 may sound like a lot to some of you. It may sound like a little to some of you. But we need help in order to keep this podcast going and to make it better, make the improvements we want to make, and to cover the ongoing costs associated with it. So if you love us like we love you, please visit patreon.com forward slash the booking and see what you can give to help support our work. I couldn't have said it better myself, Jake. That's patreon.com forward slash the booking. And now on with the show. Coming up next, you've heard the bookening discuss the last bear of Logris. Now, hear us discuss the first bear of the Hundred Acre Wood. Welcome to The Bookening. This is Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host, joining you once again for another discussion of a book. And I am joined not by three people, not by one person, but by two people. The original gang is here, including Brandon Chasteen. Hey, what's up? What do we say you were? The scholar who's a baller of... Did we say that? <laughs> I think I muttered it. I think maybe point. we should have. I've been trying to. A scholar who's a baller. I'm trying to come up with something for you besides the whatever. PhD, the, ABD. The not quite yeah, yeah, yeah. whatever. I don't, I, you know, you don't want to go through life being designated by what you're not. Yeah, let's designate me by what I am. The scholar who's a baller of books. I'm fine with a contextual Texan. <laughs> <laughs> Scholar who's a baller of books. There we go. Is it, would it baller be, of books? Uh, would it be baller of books or baller at books? Well, what does baller mean? <laughs> Someone who's a good ball player, right? Yeah, yeah. Somebody who's scholar ball. who's a baller at books. Like then, I Michael guess Michael Jackson was a uh, Mike, scholar who's Michael a baller Jackson at reading. Ball player. No, uh, uh, ooh, which goes along uh, with Michael Jordan. <laughs> Michael Jordan was a great... Yeah. <laughs> what did you say, Michael Jackson? Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't even listening. I <laughs> know uh, my, uh, Michael, Michael Jordan would be the ultimate baller. Yeah. And you would be, in my opinion, the second, right after Michael Jordan. You're like the Michael Jordan of books. The goat. There you have it. The Michael Jordan of books. The goat. The goat. Yep. How you doing today, Brandon? Doing great. You excited to discuss Winnipeg? Uh, I guess... Never mind. Are you just <laughs> yes. today? We'll be talking about Canada. <laughs> uh, I was really hoping to talk about Saskatchewan. Are you excited for another bear discussion? I am. Our last one went so well. Yeah. <laughs> Brandon, I thought that you had a good point about Mr. Bultitude that you were trying to bring up, and we shut you down. It was we fun. just shut you down. Made made for some good comedy. It made for some good comedy, but it made for some bad booking, my friend, because. We shut you down. Oh, well, I forgive you. Well, thanks. You're that welcome. eases my conscience. Good. <laughs> now, Brandon, you and I 
did the last couple episodes all alone. Yes, without our dear friend. Without our dear friend. Our dear friend was gone. And this time it wasn't because I shot him. No, <laughs> it was just because... I forgot about that. You did shoot me once, didn't you? I did. Yeah. <laughs> and yet we, but, you still consider him to be But you got dear better. <laughs> <laughs> he was too good for us that day. He stopped loving us. You remember that? Yeah. And we were just stuck alone to, to, Though, to discuss Faulkner, of all things. I know. I guess it was appropriate for things to be bleak and dreary then. Yeah. <laughs> be abandoned, because right. Faulkner felt like he was abandoned. He just... It was, poor it was guy. very meta of Jake <laughs> yeah. not to be here. Yeah. Our, the podcast's father figure had left. Yes, exactly. <laughs> we were all alone. And we did actually take his body to uh, Jefferson City. That's right. Right after we did. the podcast ended. <laughs> He's like, guys, what are you doing? We... <laughs> but uh, in my opinion, Brandon, he's here today. Is that true? Would you, would you agree with that? I'd have to look to my left to confirm your opinion. I, Should I? I, I? By all means, sir. You give me permission. Uh, yes. Oh, look. Your opinion is actual fact. In my opinion, I am also here today, or I am also, in my opinion, here today. And who Maybe are... I'm not actually here. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, Jake, who are you? I'm Jake. And uh, you are not the baller who's a scholar. <laughs> I have been dubbed on this show. Uh, uh, see, am I going to be able to talk yet? Yeah. Are you dubbed to be something or are you dubbed as? You're dubbed as something, right? I've been dubbed, I dub the... I'm dubbed the... I dub the... Yeah, you've been dubbed You just dubbed say, the. I dub the, Yeah, sir, you don't say, I dub the... You have been dubbed. Right. You done been dubbed. <laughs> you done been dubbed. I done been dubbed the pastor who's a master of reading. You got dubbed. <laughs> In the enchanted place known as the bookening. In the enchanted place known as the bookening. That's right. Jake, we did reveal your... Oh, I shouldn't tell him about that, should I? No. You remember when we revealed his big secret? Oh. I have a big secret, and you revealed it? Your dark secret. I wish I remembered. <laughs> I didn't remember it either, but I was just editing it yesterday, and I remembered where you revealed Jake's dark secret. Come over here and I'll talk to me about it. Okay. What, what was it, Nathan? He likes to burn down barns. Oh, that's right. That's the real reason he didn't join us is because that's right. it made him uncomfortable to read about D- Dale. And Since he is an arsonist. He's an arsonist. It's all coming back to me now. It's all coming. It's all coming back. Uh, well, I have no good transition from that <laughs> into when well, a happier the, childhood. Yeah, somewhat happier child. Um, let's talk about Winnie the Pooh. I had forgotten the theme song until you started to hum it there. Winnie the Pooh. Winnie yeah. the Pooh. He's a silly old Billy old. Either stuffed Billy or, with fluffy. Silly willy nilly something. Silly old willy old bear? Silly, Silly willy nilly old bear. bear. Yeah, something like that. Something like, like that. I know the wonderful thing about Tiggers is the, the Tiggers are wonderful things. Bouncy, trouncy, flouncy. flouncy something sounds, made out of springs. Fun, 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 fun. The wonderful, the wonderful thing about Tiggers is he's the only one. Yeah, true narcissist if ever there was one. <laughs> That's are right. are made out of rubber, the bottoms are made out of springs. Yeah. Like that. <laughs> and once again, I find myself transitionless. <laughs> and yet, to spring back into the conversation. Oh, yeah, there we go. Thank you, Brandon. Brandon, with the assist. We're going to spring back into the discussion, if ever we were there. We're going to spring back into the discussion to discuss Winnie the Pooh. That silly old Billy old bear. So let's just start it off with some, 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 some context. Oh. <laughs> 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 
It's going to be my new theme song. <laughs> Rocket. <laughs> I'm getting a little tired of the guns. I feel like we kind of need to switch things up a little bit. You didn't bit. even use the guns in the... What was that? That hideous strength. That hideous strength. Hey, what's that sound? There was no sound. <laughs> right. Well, he gave him to Steven, and then Steven just kind of didn't set him off. And we were too polite to say, Steven, stop with your thing and shoot the guns. Yeah. But he did a wonderful job. Thank you, Steven. Brandon, you can fire off your guns if you want to. Oh, here they come. No, let's not fire uh, off the guns. The wonderful thing about Brandon. The context. Is that he's going to give us context. Give us some context about Winnie the Pooh and the Pooh at House Corner. We're going to read that, too, or talk about that, too, in case you haven't been playing along. We're going to talk about both books by... <laughs> Did you say the Pooh at House Corner? I said the, the Pooh, Pooh at House Corner. The house, I'm the Pooh. <laughs> really uncomfortable with the second part of Winnie the Pooh's name. Can we just <laughs> rip that Band-Aid off right now? <laughs> I really wish he had a different name. Can we just call him Winnie the Blank or... <laughs> Just Winnie or Winnie the Brown, Edward. No, not Winnie the Brown. That's like the Sorry. opposite. That's, that's cut that. That's, Ed, Edward Bear. Can we call him that? Edward Bear. There Edward we go. Bear. Brandon, would you give us some context on Edward Bear? Yeah, let's do that. You might have to help me. I will do my best. So, A. A. Milne was born. He was. Was born. Okay, there we go. That's it. That's, That's all we need to yeah. know. He was born and he died, and some stuff happened in between. I always like to start by just establishing the facts. If I was going to say born, he was then... born, and then I paused because I was trying to. Yeah, we did C.S. Lewis two authors ago, or yep. one author ago, around the same time as Lewis. Actually, in 1882, he was a British citizen born in London, which means that he had a lot of the same experiences as Lewis. He fought in World War One, and he wanted to be a writer. He knew some of the guys who were a part of the writing scene. It was kind of a different scene than we have looked at even up to this point. He knew J.M. Barry, who is famous for Peter Pan, but also apparently at the time was known as a prolific playwright. Most prominent at the time, just as a famous playwright, yeah. Yeah, and so Milne wanted to be a playwright. He wanted to be a respected writer. He had some comic pieces that were published in some of the journals at the time. He wrote a lot of articles for Punch magazine, which was like... I don't know what the equivalent, not exactly the Mad Magazine, but it was like the humor magazine of the day. Yeah, so he wrote for Punch, and also in a, apparently in 1919, his play Mr. Pym Passes By was such a huge success that it gave he and his young wife at the time, Dorothy, also known as Daphne, to sell in court. I know all this off the top of my head. I'm not <laughs> yeah, reading you're it. You're clearly not reading right. it out of yeah. <laughs> Gave them financial freedom. And this was important because he was able to devote himself to the writerly craft. The writerly craft. And in the 20s, or 1920, his young, well, of course he was young, but his son, Christopher Robin, was born. His young son was born? Yeah. And it was out of Christopher Robin and his relationship with his father that we would have these stories. Edward the Bear, as we're going to call him, right, was mm -hmm. actually based on one of Christopher Robin's stuffed animals. You can apparently see Edward the Bear on display at the New York City Library. On display? On display. He's behind glass now, which is sad if you think of Toy Story. But <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. There's a lot get of things that happen to friends. toys that are sad when you think about Toy Story. Yeah, there's a lot of things that are sad when you think about the Milnes. I was th something is one of the toys that this is all based on. Oh, no. I know what it is, and we'll get there in a minute. One of the toys had a very bad end, but it wasn't it wasn't Christopher Robin's bear. It was the bear that the il illustrations were based off of. Uh. So, in 1924, he published a collection of verses called When We Were Young, and then in 26, he published Winnie the Pooh, and in 28, he published The House at Pooh Corner. So they were all published in fairly tight Session. That's the word. To one another. And these stories are all based on a father telling tales to his young son about these stuffed animals. 
that belong to the boy. And so you have Winnie the Pooh. I think that most of these animals were actually based on toys that Christopher Robin owned. That is, I know a couple of them are not. Fact. I think he created. Did he create Rabbit? Uh, I want to say Rabbit and an owl. maybe Kanga. It did, rabbit, <laughs> Rabbit, Kanga, Tigger, or so it's all easily verifiable just by looking up Wikipedia. It'll show you a picture of, but we're not going to do that. Right. This is an audio medium. We actually can yeah. do that for our listeners. Yeah. But they can look up Wikipedia themselves. Yeah. You can look it up and you will see what toys actually belong to Robin and what didn't. Matter of fact, you don't even have to listen to this podcast. You can just go online and find interesting things. And yeah. Why, why are you listening in the first place? Make up yeah. your own opinions. Well, just to continue and finish the bi- this biography part of the context, everybody who was associated with Winnie the Pooh saw it as an albatross around their neck. It was like a curse that followed them the rest of their lives. And that is the dark side to this story. It was a blot on the career of Milne, so he thought. He was known as being the Winnie the Pooh writer, and he wanted to be a serious writer. It made him into a bitter man. The way he described it was that he had, before Pooh, he had gone from success to success, and he had simply just done whatever he wanted. I mean, he actually basically said this, I did whatever I wanted, and it was successful. I would do different things. He'd had success as a playwright, as a writer of comic pieces. He he did... One of the things he enjoyed was actually varying the craft and trying different things, apparently, and he got stuck. He suddenly got frozen in, in carbonite uh, at, you know... Yeah, to the age? point where his editors would tell him, eh, you could write something else, but why? Right? What the people want is Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. And so he was stuck, and he felt stuck, and you have to think that some of that bitterness rubbed off on his son, Christopher. Also, Christopher was made fun of at school for being Christopher Robin. <laughs> A lot of the kids would quote some of the poems that Christopher was mentioned in and make fun of him for it. And so he grew to really despise his association with these books. He eventually got married and owned a little bookstore, and he and his wife did not capitalize on the fact that he was Christopher Robin. He was, I'm pretty sure, estranged from his parents. His mother didn't want to see him for like 15 years, and really an unhappy family. Not the not the kind of family that you would expect after reading these stories. You would want to think that Christopher Robin leaving the enchanted place and, you know, the whole sad parting from Winnie the Pooh, that he went off to actually have a happy adult life and a good relationship with the father who had told him these stories. But that's a, that's that's not the story that we get. Yes, I know. I can add he was involved in some of the pu- publicity for Winnie the Pooh and for just as Christopher Robin. He would have to answer letters as Christopher Robin when the books became successful. So one pretty obvious mistake that his parents probably made was forcing him into this celebrity honey boo boo is that her name that is i don't know she's some kid celebrity (laughs) no i said that is that's who she is oh yeah i mean uh you know he he had to answer letters apparently he performed on a gramophone record as a kid which was a big seller and when he went to boarding school his friends would sadistically play this gramophone record Mm. from like across the I i think like I don't know what they were called, but, you know, he was in one frat and then the neighboring frat would just play this this gramophone record. They wouldn't have been frats, but you know what I mean. Dorms. Dorm, whatever it was. They would just play this stupid gramophone record of him being a cutesy kid over and over and over again. They finally got tired of it, gave him the gramophone, and he smashed it to pieces. So that's Christopher Robin. Yeah, and if you... To go back to Lewis, if you've ever read Surprised by Joy, you know how awful those boarding schools can be. Oh, yeah. There's some disturbing stuff that Lewis tries to excuse that he mentions in that Surprised by Joy. So you just have to imagine that a boy that was made fun of like this probably had other awful things happen to him. And that he just had a bad taste in his mouth because of Winnie the Pooh. And it it turned him out to be bitter. And so that's, that's, that's Christopher Robin all grown up. 
Yes. That's, uh, that's the gritty... <laughs> the, the gritty... Re- the gritty reboot, I guess. This of is the Winnie VH1 the Pooh, behind yeah. the poo. Yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> Shoot. <laughs> Listener, it's just going to happen, and I'm not going to try and stop it. I'm not going to edit it out. It's just going to happen. Deal with it. I'm not trying to make it happen. I don't enjoy that kind of thing. I'm really not a fan of that particular bodily function at all. Poo's just going to happen. Yeah. Poo happens. <laughs> um, There's a t-shirt. <laughs> Christopher Robertson said, his quote was, that talking about his father, Milne, he had made his own way by his own efforts and he had left behind him no path that could be followed. But were they entirely his own efforts? Hadn't I come into it somewhere? Yeah. So he has several biographies you can go and read if you really want to pursue this further and find out more about their relationship. But it was sour and it was sad and it was... So and also you then have E.H. Shepard, who was the illustrator, and he himself grew disillusioned with Winnie the Pooh and wished that he just wasn't known as Shepard, who was the illustrator of Winnie the Pooh, because everyone who was associated with this just... It's like the the Superman curse for actors. If you play Superman, you'll never play anything else. And so this became so famous and such a an iconic part of British history and literary history that they just, they felt bound to it and like they couldn't get out of it. Never thought of it that way. This, the Winnie the Pooh curse the Winnie the Pooh and curse. the Superman curse. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think in all three cases, they had trouble because they wanted to, all three of them wanted to do adult stuff. Christopher Robinson most obviously wanted to just be a, an adult and everyone was like, no, you're an adorable Victorian child. Shepard wanted to do political cartoons. That was what he was famous for, I, th- I believe, before Winnie the Pooh was, you know, more adult satirical stuff. It was at least some of what he was famous for at the time. Yeah, he was known for these cartoons he would draw, like you said, political cartoons. And then he was, um, he actually based Winnie the Pooh on his child's stuffed bear, which uh, it was a particular kind of bear. I can't remember. It was the teddy bear, the original teddy bear. I don't even think the brand exists anymore. But anyways, this bear was destroyed by a neighbor's dog. Oh no. So it's been lost to history. Um, But that's the, that is the bear that Winnie the Pooh was based on. Now gone. Now gone. (laughs) That's even more darkness to the Mm. after story. I hope that dog was shot. Probably, yeah. Anyway, so there, yeah. To add just a little bit of literary context to this, uh, we haven't really talked about the relationship between author and illustrator before, but you see that here where a lot of the success of the book depends on the illustrations. That's I know that most people now think of Winnie the Pooh as the disnified red shirt wearing Winnie, but these are very different, but iconic in the sense that the only, the author that I kept thinking of while reading it, well, you have Beatrix Potter and her drawings. You have the drawings that are in C.S. Lewis's books, which I don't know who did those. Yeah, but they're very... But they're very much a part of it. You can, they actually have kind of a Winnie the Pooh feel to them. But then you also, you, you see these relationships. Dickens actually had a very close relationship to his illustrator. Well, when I think of it, I think of the illustrations in the Strand magazine for the Sherlock Holmes characters. Everybody's idea of what Sherlock Holmes looks like is those drawings. Yeah. Um, you know, what's his face? Who wrote Sherlock Holmes? Uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle never said that Sherlock Holmes wore a deerstalker cap, but his illustrator put him in a deerstalker cap and the rest of Yeah, and of that's history. what you remember. Yeah. And so a lot of the ways that like we think of Dickens characters even are shaped by this guy named Fizz was his nickname. Nice Dickensian name. Yeah, and he was Dickens' illustrator and he worked very closely with Dickens throughout his career. And so this is just a phenomenon that you see begin kind of in the Victorian era as printing presses are able to produce more quantity and also in these magazines like you said punch magazine dickens had his own magazines that he created for his books he was kind of his own industry but not we're not talking about dickens right now so yeah 
not much more to say about it except for the fact that this is a artifact of literary history. This close relationship between illustrator and author. I was about to say artist. But you have anything you want to add to that? Well, I don't know whether you're going to talk about this, but uh, Winnie the Pooh actually, it's my understanding that it basically created the modern marketing licensing industry. A guy named, I came across this in my research, a guy named Stephen Schlesinger, who is an American radio producer, film producer, just kind of a businessman, bought the rights to Winnie the Pooh, the licensing rights, in 1930 from Milne. So it wasn't like Milne died and then Disney swept in and stole it. Milne sold it off to Schlesinger at in 1930s, the American and Canadian, I think, rights. By 1931, Pooh was a $50 million a year business, Hmm. apparently. Dolls, games. So everything that you see with like peanuts or or with everything, really. The the, the modern marketing, licensing machine, Garfield. I don't know what the modern ones are. But in my day, it was Garfield and Peanuts. Mickey Um, Mouse. Mickey Mouse, of course. Yeah, and everything that Disney can get their hands on. That was basically invented. How about Marvel? Marvel, sure, yeah. absolutely. Marvel would be the one now. And Schlesinger actually uh, gave the right... What's, what's Star Wars. Star Wars, yeah. Oh, there's there's a good example. <laughs> um, and, and Schlesinger's widow sold the rights to Mr. Disney, I believe, in the 1960s. And then he made his movies that we probably all remember. But uh, Disney was not the first person to license the crap out of Winnie the Pooh. It was this guy, Schlesinger. And Milne himself, apparently. And Milne himself. And I think that Christopher Robin grew to hate that fact that it had been treated that way. Well, it seems like that's a responsible for a lot of Christopher Robinson's hate, actually. Like the gramophone record would be an example of something, you know, a product that he would have been expected to create, you know, based on the popularity of the book. doesn't really have anything to do with literary value or the goodness of the book. It's just some dumb gramophone record that he's recording because he's a celebrity. Yeah. It's not hard to resent things like that, especially when you have no agency over them. uh, Yeah, I read that Winnie the Pooh is the second most lucrative license for Disney besides Mickey Mouse or the cartoon character at least is they've made more money on him than they have anything else which will probably change since now they own Star Wars and I'm sure Marvel those will trump all of that I can't imagine Mickey and Winnie winning against them but come on Darth Vader this could have definitely improved with some Darth Vader yep (laughs) (laughs) um I don't think we've really ever talked about the history of children's literature (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if we want to get into it or not. Maybe just a little bit. Children's literature was kind of created, the whole concept that we have of children's literature as its own market, created in the 1700s by this guy named John Newberry, who was a publisher. Is that why there's the Newberry Medal that's always stamped on the front of... Yeah, pretty sure that the Newberry Medal is named after him. He, he, He was one of the first to actually come up with this book of tells for of good and bad for girls and boys. And he would like market it with a little toy that they could put pins in representing their good and bad deeds and stuff. And so they were stories that were actually marketed at children. Obviously before then you had stories that were for children. You had fairy tales, you had riddles and poems and stuff. So it's not like the idea of telling stories to children was a novel idea, but the whole market of books aimed at children was kind of a novel idea, and particular stories that were aimed at children. So you had moral tells before, then you had religious tells. One thing that kind of goes hand in hand with this is in the Victorian age, 
when you would see the rise of even more of these kinds of stories was the creation of an idea of childhood. So think about, for example, Jane Austen. When she talks about children, she talks about them as a mother would typically talk about a child, enjoys their presence, she knows their children, but there isn't this sentimentality surrounding the concept of childhood, mm-hmm. you know? But when you get to Dickens, it kind of changes where you have this whole idea of the nostalgia and the beauty and the sentimentality that we tend to think of with childhood even today. It's interesting thinking of how a whole idea and concept can just be created and marketed to. And so I think the closest analogy we have to today is the concept of youth, right? Or the young adult, where they have their certain tastes. And so like what they like in in the 90s, it was like they, they like MTV. Now it's they like young adult fiction. And you have to have these really stupid stories that are bad and everybody admits are bad that are written just for them. But it's because it's been created. And childhood up to that point hadn't been seen as this thing that had to be idolized in the same way. There was some value to it. You had the Industrial Revolution, children were taken advantage of. And so some of these things that Dickens did actually helped. And they were helpful in seeing that children should be protected, right? But then they also created this new concept of childhood as we think of it with butterflies and fairies and um, the sort of sweet sickliness to it. You have that. And then you also have then children's literature that's becoming a growing market as the whole book and publishing trade grows as well. And so that gets you to the point where you have guys like Milne writing Winnie the Pooh. You have Beatrix Potter writing... I mean, just like a lot of the, the the novel itself, short story, all these things kind of grew as the publishing trade grew, and they had to kind of create markets for themselves. You began to see this market that was created that was children's literature. And Newbery was kind of a pioneer in it, but then it just grew to become, and it took on its own traditions and themes. So usually it would be about animals, you know, stuff that children would like. I know that Charles Lamb wrote a, children, a children's Shakespeare that was fairly popular. And so, yeah, I mean, there's not a whole lot more to say about it than that. If you listen to our Christmas Carol episode, I believe part two, dear listener, go and download that today. You can hear us talk a little bit more about the Industrial Revolution and our thoughts on Tiny Tim and the sentimentality, sentiment, what's the verb form? Sentimentalizing, sentimentalizing of children and what's bad about that, what's maybe good about that. I think we have an extended, or I know we have a somewhat extended discussion of that on that wonderful episode available now on iTunes and warhornmedia.com. Anything else you wanted to add for context? No. Other than that, I think that that whole world of childhood helps begin to understand what Milne is doing because there was a separation between adult and child that even in like, so children were almost seen as other right? in a way that they hadn't been seen in the past, or at least there's not evidence of that. Right. Right. They're little people at that point, but here they're like creatures that eventually have to pass over this threshold where they become an adult. Right. And that's like, they're just like Peter Pan. You see that with Peter Pan too. They're leaving behind an identity and stepping into another one. I think Peter Pan is the really interesting one because it's got a certain squeamishness about the whole thing that's yeah kind of interesting. But maybe we'll get to Peter Pan one of these years. I'd certainly like to. There goes the airplane. Uh-oh. Baggage check. Jake, what kind of baggage did you bring to this reading of to this reading this book my first experience of winnie the pooh was disney's winnie the pooh didn't have winnie the pooh when i was a little kid but about the time i was eight or nine Pooh was brought into my house 
So Winnie the Pooh and Friends was brought into my house when I was probably about nine with one of my younger brothers and was there to stay all through, all through the time I lived at home because I had another brother that was born when I was 12. And so... Was it read aloud or did you read it yourself? No, or? just the Disney, just Disney. So the movies and the cartoon shows. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, my stepmother was a, is a fine artist and she painted, you know, Winnie the Pooh murals on the kids' bedrooms and like on the walls and stuff like that. And then... When we got pregnant with our first born son, we got gifted a copy of Complete Tales of Winnie the Pooh. And the first time I read it, Peter, my oldest son, was a little too young to even understand anything. But Amanda and I just ended up reading it out loud together for fun. And I ended up reading it in the hospital, I think, during labor uh, when Lucy was born. So it's my second child, my oldest daughter. How old would you have been at that time? Would I have been? Yeah. You and Amanda. 25, 21. I was just interesting because I, I didn't bring this article to, to share it, but I read an article about how one place where a lot of people discover Winnie the Pooh, assuming they don't discover it in childhood, is college. That's a place where it's really popular among that age group. It seems to have not lost its luster like it has for a lot of other age groups for whatever reason. Well, part of the charm of it, at least when we were just sort of reading it, the two of us, was... Here we are, we've just you know finished up college and we have started a family and we're having kids and here's a book that sort of revels in childhood and childhood lost and the innocence of childhood. And so yeah, there was a there was a certain something about it that was appealing to us at the time and we thought it was funny and sad and sweet. Um, so that was the first time I read it and really enjoyed it. Um, and then I've read it since to my kids as I've gotten older and old enough to understand it more. And so this reading was just more of a, okay, let's see how it hits my kids this time. I mean, if there's any baggage, that was it. Because um, I read it out loud to the kids. My oldest is now nine. Lucy's now seven. And then we've got kids on down from there, five. I think we have five, four, three, one and a half, and seven months or something like that. So... I'd, I've read it to my kids at various ages, and so I guess oh, I just wanted to see how it hit them, what they understood, what they didn't understand, what they got, what they were interested in, what they were excited about. And so I don't know how to unpack any more baggage than that. Well, I'm sure we will hear the answers to some of those questions a yeah, little bit later on. Yeah, we go there now discuss. if you want. I don't know. You're the... No, I don't, unless you really, really wanted to. My baggage is the Disney movies, which I grew up with. I have not seen them for probably over 20, 25 years, so they really have a nostalgic haze for me. Like they, I remember them as being big and fun and kind of scary and weird like I was young enough that they actually hit me you know not just as funny little trifles but as like something sort of powerful so that's basically been my idea of Winnie the Pooh all my life I've always known that there was a guy named Mild that wrote some story called Winnie the Pooh but I've never had uh, I'd never read it until this reading I was aware of Milne as a guy that was quoted by obnoxious homeschoolers and we know how terrible they are so I, I kind of had a negative view of it just because it was associated with not a lot of like humble construction worker kids read Winnie the Pooh as far as I could tell they just watch the Disney movies but snotty paper mache making homeschool kids they read Winnie the Pooh and then they're like it's so funny let me quote this poem to you I was like please um so, <laughs> so that was I like kind your of homeschool voice. <laughs> the other bit of context I will give, just because it's something that I hadn't thought about for nigh on 
25, 30 years, but it came back to me in full force reading these stories is I uh, used to have dolls. I had uh, Ernie, Bert, and Cookie Monster. They would be in bed with me every night. Ernie would sleep closest to me because obviously he's the coolest. And then Cookie Monster would be in the middle in between Bert. And I had those dolls and they were like, I had an attachment to them. They were my friends. They went on vacation with me. I didn't think they were real or anything, but I kind of wanted to think they were real. I don't know. I guess that's, I don't know how common that is. I remember one time I had a sleepover with a friend when I was getting a little too old for it. I don't know, maybe seven, eight, whatever. And my friend and I had them in my sleeping bag and my friend found them and he he hid them because he wanted me to man up. Um, And uh, I'm still angry with him about that. You never day. find them? No, I did find them. I okay. just hid them like under the mattress or you something. You didn't throw like them that. to the neighbor's dog or no. something? They did eventually meet their demise at the hands of a dog that our family got later. So All three of them? Yes, all three of them at various times. Uh, Cookie Monster lost his eye first and then things went downhill from there. It's funny. I, I got a rabbit that looks not very different from uh, the rabbit in the in the stories that my grandmother made that was my stuffed animal that ended up meeting its demise oh it did meet its demise by a dog too but yeah i will say she made a rabbit for each of us wow i don't know why and it was it wasn't you can't listeners can't see my hand gestures but it's a big rabbit right his hand gestures are big listeners two feet tall or something yeah Yeah. it's a big rabbit are you sure it didn't just feel two feet tall because you were two feet tall no i'm not sure because I was two feet tall. Right. So it's very possible. I'm just giving you <laughs> right. the exact really proportions. big rabbit. He's growing bigger. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's grown larger as I've grown larger. I think he needs to come in. Yeah. We can pause. And yeah. Go ahead. Here comes Phil. One of the members of My Soul Among Lions walking through here. Doesn't know when. I can't tell whether you're we are. Yeah. Just interrupt we, us. we just paused. We'll just ask for you to participate every time you Do come in. Do a song in. and dance every time you walk Do you have any baggage through. with Winnie the Pooh? <laughs> Have you read it to your kids? Yeah. Do you like it? I like it, yeah. Do your kids like it? Yeah, but I don't know. It's been a while. Anything good or bad to say about it? Nothing. Just a book. Just a book that sometimes read to your kids. Did you grow up with it? A little bit, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Was it a TV show? Yeah. Yeah, there was one. It's the one that started out with a pan with all the stuffed animals. There is is something weird about it, I have to say. There's something weird about Winnie the Pooh. Yes. There's something really, I don't know what it is. It's, I don't know if it's effeminacy, but it's something. There's something off. Something off about it. That's that's good. We we're gonna, all we all find something off about it. Too. We're gonna yeah. we're gonna figure it out by the end of this episode. We're gonna try. Yeah. Okay, good. Answer the Winnie the Pooh. The, the, the eternal conundrum. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's not unhelpful to have you say something weird about it. That's yeah, for sure. That's really helpful, actually. Um, actually yeah. I think that was just about all of my context. I will say that Ernie Burt and Cookie Monster are, I'm ruthlessly unsentimental about stuff. I am have moved twice within the last few months and I have purged. I just love, I love getting rid of stuff. I love just telling myself, you can buy a new one, get rid of it. Who cares? I love, love, love getting rid of stuff. I have no attachment to anything. The one thing in my life that I am sorry that does no longer exists is Ernie Burton, Cookie Monster. I really do still feel a slight nostalgic. I mean, I'm not going to like start crying right now, but I, I, I really do like if there's one thing from my past that I could grab and bring into the present and just have sit behind a glass case so I could contemplated every once in a while it would be those three dolls because they were special your buzz and woody that you feel sorry for yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) if but if toy story 3 ended with them all getting eaten by a dog slowly and painfully then 
that would be the story of poor Bert, Ernie, and Cookie Monster. Mm-hmm. I, I had a stuffed clown whose name was Funny Face. <laughs> okay. Which, yeah. Uh, that explains almost everything. <laughs> That's all I have to say. <laughs> now, my baggage is similar. We went to my grandmother's house a lot, and I remember watching the television show. And that kind of, that was actually my involvement with Winnie the Pooh, Edward the Bear, for a long time. I'd watch those shows occasionally, but Winnie the Pooh wasn't a big part of my life. Never, never read to us. You said before, just a minute ago, you know, the one that begins with the panning of the yeah. actual stuffed animals. And I do remember that. We've got, so I, I barely remember seeing a little bit of that. But when I say that, like my introduction was like the new adventures of Winnie the Pooh, like yeah. hyper, like... The Disney Channel Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, what I wasn't been the Disney Channel. We the had time, like videotapes of it that yeah. would just be so was either about... that or Blues Clues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's kind of was my introduction until I got married and my wife. I think her mother actually gave us a large Winnie the Pooh and a large Beatrix Potter, and so. I kind of browsed them at the time. I thought I liked the poems. That they, she told me that it was good. And so I read some of it and thought it was charming and nice. You know, we were silly homeschool people. So we bought our kids the actual original illustrated Winnie the Pooh stuffed animals at one time. So Disgusting. Yeah. Thank you. But I don't really have like a large attachment to Winnie the Pooh or some... He's not a significant part of my childhood or my past. He was just something that came into my life as a dad. And I read him some to my kids. They never really asked for Winnie the Pooh or wanted me to read Winnie the Pooh. They were never really crazy about it. Yeah. Henry likes his Eeyore stuffed animal, but that's about it. He doesn't really know who Eeyore is. He Eeyore, who he's inherited from Elliot, who we... I think it was Elliot that we got him for. But yeah, so the Disney versions were more of what I remembered. I was surprised when I saw the illustrations. I was like, oh yeah, let's be purist about it and go back to the roots. But now, I don't know. I still don't feel a strong attachment to Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. I think, I think Milne's a, a good writer, and he's charming, and He wrote one of your favorite and, poems from our favorite poem episode. That's right. But... Yeah, I mean, I hear you guys saying Winnie the Pooh was somewhat peripheral, and I I feel the same way. I mean, mm-hmm. like he wasn't we we didn't own the VHS. I don't think like he wasn't he was I liked him and everything, but he wasn't my favorite Disney movie by by a long shot, and I don't have a great attachment to him one way or another. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, he's such a part of the cultural fabric. My but my involvement with him was kind of like what it was with Mickey Mouse, like we said earlier. It's just he's something that is here, and he's a part of Disney's pantheon of characters i was surprised when i found out that he was very different in the actual milne stories but mm-hmm. you know like people finding craft brews or anything like that it's just can be pre- preciousness with yourself it's mm-hmm. not necessarily that the illustrations are better than the disney versions all right guys and now for another fantastic transition into the next part of our show that Brandon is going to give us transition us brandon go i got none for you sorry bud transition us jake Maybe I can just take over here for a second. Be my guest. Brandon and I have obviously been processing Winnie the Pooh through our kids. Yes. How did you come to it as somebody who doesn't have kids? Well, I think I had less problems with it than you guys did. Uh, we have 
I'm just going to tell the listener, we had a pre-discussion about this that was kind of intense and me and Jake yelled at each other and he stormed out of the room and came back after he went for a walk by the on the, the pier and uh, uh, some tiddlywinks. Tiddlywinks, yeah. Poo sticks. Yeah, poo sticks. Some, some poo sticks. <laughs> Brandon was just was sobbing in the corner, just feeling... <laughs> Left out. Just feeling vulnerable. And okay. like, Daddy and mommy are fighting. What do I do? Kind of a thing. And it's I just my felt birthday. Like Jake didn't want to understand me and Jake... We had this big fight and it was terrible and oh man and jake was like why didn't you press record because i didn't want you to hate us listener (laughs) basically there was a little tension because why jake because winnie the pooh is obviously very beloved by lots of people pooh and all the characters are cultural icons these books are beloved i love the books and i love reading them to my kids and to my wife and yet There's something, as, you know, Phil just walked through here a minute ago, he said there's something off and something maybe wrong about the Mm -hmm. books. And we were trying to get at, okay, is there something wrong? Is there something off with the books? And if so, what is it? And that's something that we've been sort of circling around in our discussion. And I've been circling around as I've read it to my kids now for the third or fourth time. Right. And so you have on the one hand, your love for for these books and how important they are to so many people and then this sense that something may not be quite right and how do you identify what that is because it's bound up with the idea of tone which is a very difficult thing to put your finger on how do you draw it out in a way that still acknowledges that there's a lot to love about these books but it's very difficult to have that kind of conversation without pushing yourself into Some into kind of hyperbolic corner, yeah. statements, into corners, into you know adopting the position. Okay, these books are evil, and this is why. You know, you have to you sort of have those kinds of arguments. But when you do that with something that people love, then it, it can get tense. So, yep, we were we were basically feeling all of your pain for you, listener, right. as we were trying to discuss. You know, what if anything is bad about right. about these books? So you may hear us say some black and white sounding things here, but we're not saying don't read the books. I mean, I'll just preface this by saying they're well-written books. The characters are funny. I don't think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about anybody, but Eeyore is pretty... Eeyore is funny. Eeyore is funny. He's staring at himself when we first meet him and saying, pathetic, just pathetic, (laughs) which I love. I don't identify with that at all. Um, Never looked in the mirror and said anything like that. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of it's funny. I don't know whether it's funny in kid a way that kids can quite get, which will be part of, I'm sure, what we talk about. But there are some really delightful things in this book. And Milne's a good writer. And the part where Christopher Robin goes and becomes an adult and grows up is heartbreaking. Sad. And, sad, and he loses the magic of childhood. And you cry. And Brandon yep. reads his poem in our poetry episode. And, and you cry. cry and, we cry. Yeah. So Because he really he'd had his finger on that part of childhood where you are growing out of something. But now that we've had time to think it over, and I'm thinking of it in context of this whole created world of childhood and the passing from one zone into another. Right. I don't know. And yet he gets at something. That's why it's difficult, listener. He does get at something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Calm all... down there, listener. Yeah, you try doing that. I'm not podcast. saying there's not a transition between childhood and adulthood, and that's not, it's not sad. And that... Right. Well, let's uh, take a step back. So that's all the discussion you're going to get about the characters and all the usual stuff that we talk about. Eeyore is great. <laughs> yeah, well, there's not much to say, right? Yeah, just, each story kind of is a little charming vignette of this world of the Hundred Acre Woods. Yeah. Go and read them. You're not going to get a summary of each story. Yeah. Uh, Kanga. They're easy to read. And they're Kanga, funny. misogynist stereotype? Probably. 
totally misogynist stereotype yeah she's yeah. just like Whatever. the mother figure that's all she wants to do is be a mother yeah man it's disgusting yep that glass ceiling of the 100 acre woods mm-hmm. even the 100 acre woods has a glass ceiling and now they all literally are under a glass ceiling at the new york library right <laughs> somebody needs to go bust that for kanga yeah <laughs> Uh, if you're a feminist and you listen to us, which I don't know why you would, but we need you to go uh, bust the uh, glass ceiling in the museum. Do it. Uh, even though Kanga's not in there because I think he invented her from whole cloth and she wasn't one of Christopher Robertson's toys. We really could figure this out, but we're not. <laughs> we're not going to. <laughs> Got to leave a little work for the listener. They, they appreciate it. All right, Jake, can you try and summarize what the problem is? I know the problem is defining the problem, but give us a starting place if you can. Here's the thing. When I when I read these stories, I've read these stories to all of my kids at various ages, and they don't they don't care, actually, and they don't get it. The humor goes over their heads, and they're not engaged by the stories, and they'll sit and listen. But I think it's largely because dad or mama are, is reading a story. Well, what's what's going on with that? Why do adults think it's funny? Why does the humor go over the kids? Is that okay? Um, is it indicative of something? Is it indicative of a some, problem with the book, or is right. it just a feature of the book? And so uh, I don't know. I think that was probably a bad way to approach it. Can I start over? Sure. <laughs> I think that's where I would have started, is by comparing it to other stories. I think that's. I th- I think that was right, but I think that I just said my kids don't like it. I don't think that was the right thing to do. Oh. Well, what story can is there one that we can can concretely depare, compare it to? Is there something you have in mind, or, or what kinds of stories? Oh. Well, we did we did Kipling, we did Ricky Ticky Tabby, mm-hmm. um, or the Just So stories, but even C.S. Lewis, uh, Chronicles of Narnia, or I mean, any number the old fairy tales. The thing about the all of those stories is that they're all like if you could identify what they all have in common is they're all meant to engage the kids and fire their imaginations and they give them a character, a central character, one character that they can relate to and identify with. And they give them a problem that that character has to overcome, you know, some kind of conflict. And it's not always, you know, dragons and and whatnot, but there's conflict and there's evil and there's danger and there's, and then there's resolution and it's engaging. And the kids, when you read those stories to them, sit on the edge of their seats. And I can read King Arthur stories in old, difficult-to-follow language, and my kids love it because they still get, this is good, this is evil, this is Arthur, the boy king that I can identify with being noble and awesome, right? And then you come to to Milne, and his tongue is planted in his cheek. There's not a lot of conflict or interest, and all of the humor is basically directed to the adult who's reading the story, which makes it an enjoyable read for the adult and not so much for the kid. And so Christopher Robin, if he's the one your kid's supposed to relate to, he's sort of the butt of the joke. And so what's going on with that? You have these other authors that are, they're condescending to children. They're getting down on their hands and knees and they're talking to them, Kipling, my my best beloved. C.S. Lewis taking his asides and speaking to the children, the thing that you said you love so much about reading Lewis mm. growing up. But that's an adult letting you in as a kid and lifting you up and mm-hmm. making you feel sort of grown up or sort of a part of the story. Mm-hmm. This is different. This is Milne talking deliberately over the top of your head, saying one thing to you and meaning another. And we all, as parents, we do that sometimes with our kids and it's funny and our kids are funny and things sail past kids' heads and the irony of life is lost on them. And that can be funny. And that's part of what's so charming and and neat about what Milne does, but he does it the whole book. And 
to me strikes me as more and more as, you know, I'm not really sure that the I should even think of these as children's stories anymore. Well, what I'm thinking as you talk is that um, I don't have kids, listener, in case you hadn't figured that out by now. So I'm not really able to approach it as much through a modern child that exists right now perspective, only through my memories of being a kid and through... Um, what I think of it now. But it does occur to me, just bigger picture-wise, that there may be an inherent problem with just doing a comic tale for kids because kids don't understand what's funny. The comedy for kids is straightforward. It's slapstick. Well, it's because a comedy has to do with the undermining of expectations, and kids have not built up enough expectations about life for them to be appropriately undermined. Kids know that you should continue to be upright when you're walking. And so therefore, when someone slips on a banana peel, it's funny, but they don't necessarily understand all the ways that you should be smart in a relationship or as you Mm -hmm. engage with the world. And so therefore, when Winnie the Pooh or when Christopher Robinson in these stories is not doing those things, they don't feel the disconnect. They don't get it because it's all these shades of gray and these nuances and these abstract things that would just be, I would think, very difficult for kids. I mean, they just they haven't lived enough to get it. And so you find, at least we found, that as I said earlier, my oldest is nine, my second oldest is seven, as they're getting to a place and beginning to get to a place where they start to get just a little bit of some of the humor and see some of the things coming, they don't care. Right. And they're feeling a little too... They're too old for animal stories, but they're like, there's there might be this perfect two month window where like they're they're exactly right yeah and, and I don't want to extrapolate you know my kids are different than other people's kids and um, some kid, kids are certainly more perceptive than than my kids and and maybe less and some are less perceptive and some are going to be more drawn to that kind of I'm thinking, sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. no. I've never Scally. seen such a pensive, <laughs> I was trying to almost put together scowl a on Brandon's Well, face. You, it was what you said about your children being perceptive. I don't think that a, per, a more perceptive child, and your children are perceptive. My children had the same reaction as yours did. Elliot, around the age of Peter, same age, actually, was the one who enjoyed it the most, but even he wasn't begging for these stories. Yeah, none of my kids want these stories read. And in fact, yeah. if you say, hey, let's read Winnie the Pooh, they're all like, oh, like... There are five other things we'd rather you read, but they'll sit and listen to them. So if I think about a more perceptive child, if you want to think that way, what they're going to, instead of reading The Hobbit, maybe they'll want to read The Lord of the Rings. I don't know. Well, what so, they want so is they want a story that's meatier. They don't necessarily want a story that's now making fun of stories. Right. right. They want something that's just more engaging. The The Pooh stories don't get more engaging in any kind of like narrative sense. They only get more engaging in an... I can now appreciate the irony of this sense, Hmm. which is why maybe, you know, college students... College students might be the perfect people for this book because they're kind of like, for the first time, they're nostalgic about home and the things of childhood. And they're like, ah, you know, my dolls. And But they're also, you yeah, know, that they, makes they perfect have the ironic to to college kid detachment to, to be able to appreciate it. I'm thinking of this old showbiz maxim, which is that if you are a dramatic performer, you want the stage to be higher than the audience because you want to tower over them, that you want them to look up to you. If you are a comic performer, then you hate that kind of a room. You do not want that room to perform in. If you're a comedian, you want a room where the audience actually looks down on you or is at least on the same level because the audience needs to be able to 
they can't see you as your, they're superior. They they have to see you as relatable and or worse. They have to be able to they have to be the ones somehow condescending to you for a number of different styles of comedy. And I just again think that's a good illustration of why these stories may not necessarily work because kids just don't have the if if comedy takes a certain amount of understanding yourself to be better than the comedian if it takes looking down on the stage kids aren't tall enough to look down on on that performer you know they don't have the stature they don't have the reality and the experience i guess i'm just saying the same thing in a different way but they're just simply not going to appreciate the juxtaposition of irony because they don't understand enough about the reality to see the disconnect we did in our extensive research for this podcast we went back and listened to what we said about story and what was it? The Jungle, oh, the jungle, oh, book the jungle Books. And we said that it needs to have a sense of danger, mm-hmm. good and evil, and also a good surrogate for the child. And in the Winnie the Pooh stories, I think the only surrogate you get is for the father reading the stories. You get A.A. A. Milne, who is just all over these stories, and that's the tone you get. And so you get a surrogate, which is why there's some catharsis. Leader, yeah. You get some um, catharsis about your childhood and about the fact that you had to grow up and about the fact that your children are going to grow up. But even Yeah, that- it's, it's you putting yourself in the place of your father yeah and you, you may be actually Christopher Robin you know as a child as you read it as an adult yeah. you know seeing things through your father's eyes or then seeing things through yeah but then to think about my kids really like me to read fairy tales to them mm-hmm. they ask for that they also they like the Beatrix Potter stories and I think I associate them so much because we got these books at the same time sure like if you think of the tale of Squirrel Nutkin, he almost dies. He almost gets eaten by the owl. Right. Or if you think about Peter Rabbit, he almost gets killed by the farmer. So there is a sense of tension and then resolution that's just teaching a child what to expect from story and what do we like about story in the first place. They're not old enough to just like a story that's just... Shades of gray. About the sense that, yeah, about how funny things are and charming. They don't, that's not what they want from a story. And I, that's actually probably a good thing. Um, You want, you want... Well, they're living the misty, what we're going to, what they're going to come to see is the misty, nostalgic wonder. They're living it. They don't need it painted for them. The silliness of these characters and their relationships to one another. It's not something that they're, it's not what they want from a story. Yeah. And I don't know if they're... As a child out there who does, I don't know. And that's not to say that there aren't points, you know, in any of these stories that the kids thought were funny or enjoyed. Yeah, and that's not to say that these are bad stories. They're just not children's stories. Well, I approached them for the first time in my ever as an adult, and I thoroughly enjoyed them. They're funny. I mean, Eeyore's funny. I think especially the adult-ish characters that kids would never in a million years get were charming to me, like Rabbit, the day that he wakes up and just decides that today's a day to be busy and he's just going to be a a, a, a obnoxious, arrogant nuisance. It's just like, yeah, I've uh, either been Rabbit or known some rabbits in my time. You know, I mean, it's like, (laughs) it's the same, it's the comedy of Jane Austen or something like that. But I don't think a kid would even, I mean, as a kid, I remember being annoyed by rabbit anytime he showed up in the cartoon because he was just an adult like he literally was the adult and you're just like why is there an adult in the hundred acre woods this is dumb yeah so i think you get milne as your surrogate you don't have any of the sense of danger or well it occurs to me too that even for the sentimentality like that poem that you read in our poetry thing episode or the the last chapter where where christopher robin goes away you're still seeing it through an adult's eyes and you're being sad for what you've lost kind of you're not really ever invited to to quite empathize with or enter into yeah a child's not going to feel those things right Right. elliot doesn't feel those things he's a boy and really all he wants he wants to 
play and he wants to grow up, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what kids want. And so it doesn't resonate with them in the way that say the, the Chronicles of Narnia would. Yeah. And those have animal characters that are a little bit silly, but there's something else and something more going on. And I think that with children's literature, you want it to train the tastes of the child mm-hmm. towards what they're going to expect in a story and what they're going to want in a story. And so I I guess if you want little postmoderns who grow up to just enjoy irony, right? only read Winnie the Pooh to your kids. Ah, I don't know how you guys feel about childhood, but when I was a kid, and seems to be what I see with kids, is you're just always living this weird kind of kid tension because you don't really know what's what's black and white always i don't know how to say this but you're just like you know you don't know not to put your stick something in the socket so you suddenly realize oh shoot there's a thing that i can cross off my list of things that i should ever do because i get yelled at my hand gets smacked when i try to put something in the socket you're living that tension a lot you know you're looking to adults you're trying to quickly learn and adapt and figure out what's acceptable and what's not acceptable so the wonderful thing about a story like Grimm's fairy tales or something like that is that it's just very black and white and witches are evil and they should be tortured to death at the end of the stories and nobody should feel bad because they're witches for crying out loud beautiful princesses are good and you know we don't feel bad because you know beautiful people white privilege it's just beautiful princesses are good and princes are good and witches are bad it's reassuring to have things be that solid it does help define your moral sense and it does help you then in the weird big abstract adult world think about who is what and what is who so i think you need your stories to do that yeah we just saw a movie that i think kind of failed at this um a monster calls have you seen this A monster calls Mm -hmm. yeah i saw the trailer and the whole point of that story is this kid's dealing with the death of his mother and this tree monster comes and tells him stories and the point is that life is more complicated sometimes the prince is the bad guy and all this stuff and you know whatever but is that what you really want your stories to teach children right and so you are looking at stories will teach children either they'll teach them through the explicit moral or they'll teach their tastes they'll train their tastes yeah you have to ask yourself is winnie the pooh because you you yeah of course there's the expectation that you want to teach children to like things that are good right and so maybe children are going to prefer just watching teenage mutant ninja turtles on the tv that's what they want that's not really what they need Mm -hmm. so that's one argument but then you have to ask yourself okay so if you have to then know what they need and then you have to say okay is winnie the pooh what they need so they don't want it is it what they need and i don't necessarily think it's what they need i think i think there may be two answers to that question is it is it what they need and one is there are lots of better stories out there that kids will engage in and will do a better job on the other hand sometimes what kids need are parents to want to read to them and to want to engage with them and because a lot of the irony does end up sailing over the kids heads you could do worse a lot worse than reading Milne because you like it to your kids, but you're not doing the good that you maybe... Yeah, I mean, it's snack food at best. It's certainly not medicinal. It's not... It's not snack food for the kids. It's like, ugh, for the kids. That's what I really think what my kids think is just, ugh. And then they try. You know, they see you enjoying it and laughing at it as you're reading it, and they try to, and they can't. You know, they don't... There was actually, after we finished it's one like chapter... It's like broccoli to kids. <laughs> well, after one chapter, Jack actually asked, okay, can we go to bed now? <laughs> <laughs> that pretty much says it all. <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> you know, the best that I asked my wife about about how she thought the kids like Winnie the Pooh, and she said, "Well." I think they don't think it's uninteresting. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There's a politician answer I've, I've heard one. Uh, so when you say you have to give kids what they need and not what they want, it doesn't even really work because they don't even really want this. Yeah. And so... I mean, you're still your point is still good, but... But if you thought that they needed it, then, you know, you'd say, no, you're going to sit and you're going to listen to it. Well, there's a time to read Jane Austen, but you have to be old enough. There is... There is I am not opposed to the literature of satire not opposed to the literature of irony obviously i'm never ironic i don't do anything ironic i don't support irony there's never been any irony on the bookening i don't think do or support or have anything to do with irony on the bookening we are never ironic um get it <laughs> listener um that was that was cluing in the children listening right yeah. <laughs> yeah if there's any six-year-olds listening that was actually i was saying the opposite of what i meant this thing called irony um <laughs> Where was I going with that? I got so distracted by my hilarious irony rant that I forgot what I was trying to say. Um, I think there is a place for stories about the folly of human, you know, I mean, I like, I don't think it's always healthy, but I like, I like a lot of Coen Brothers movies, which are basically, uh, you know, we said in our pre-discussion that uh, Winnie the Pooh is basically the, the Coen Brothers of, of children's literature, because it's all stories about morons where you're invited to sort of smugly be better than them and just laugh at, you know, George, there's George, old George Clooney being a moron again. There's Winnie the Pooh following his own tracks with Piglet. They don't even get it. Jane Austen, as we've talked about, is a delightful purveyor of that sort of humor and enjoyment. But there's always, A, a real moral foundation in her, and B, she's a better writer, and C, she actually has something to say, and D, I don't know. Have we solved the problem already? I don't know, maybe. I mean, I think, like, if you're listening to this and you just love Milne, I'm with you. It's because you're a smug, uh, arrogant jerk. <laughs> like me, <Right>. apparently. <laughs> <laughs> and Jake's with you. And me. <laughs> No, no, no. I love Milne. I really enjoyed it as an adult. I thought it was funny. I mean, in like a kind of the reason I think of the Coen brothers is because their movies invite you to laugh in the same way. It's usually in a more violent, sadistic way with them. But, you know, it's just kind of like, oh, yeah, there's some idiots. That's funny. If you like reading Milne and you're an adult out there, I'm with you. If you think that isn't it weird that this thing that's supposed to be really great, my kids have a hard time entering into and enjoying. I think we've got at maybe why. If you think that Milne is mod- modeling good fatherhood for you here, and this is the way that you should treat your kids all the time, then you're wrong. That's where I think we need to explore a little bit further, because I think you guys in particular, as fathers, were squeamish, especially about the first chapter, a chapter and a half, whatever, where it's just straight up, Christopher Robin comes down the stairs, we talk about the zoo, all that kind of stuff, made you guys squeamish in a way that I had to use my powers of deductive empathy to enter into because I had no idea that that would make anybody squeamish. But that is not just about dramatic irony going over kids' heads. That's something else, isn't it? Or something more? Maybe. I mean, yeah. And when Phil says there's something wrong, he's getting at something a little deeper. Yeah. Yeah, Whatever that is. So what is that? The relationship between the father and son here. Yeah. Kids are funny. If you don't see the humor in your kids and aren't tempted to laugh at them or to make jokes that are over their heads, then I think you're a little too squeamish. Mm. Sometimes kids should be mocked, but there's this total insincerity that's portrayed in how he 
relates to Christopher Robin all the time. What is the insincerity? This is where we're going to have to move into black and whites that maybe listeners aren't comfortable with and maybe don't really represent everything that we really think. But just to generalize. But but to, to push into it, it's this this sense that he's always taking and never giving to his kid, to Christopher. He's always taking some kind of delight at Christopher Robin's expense and never actually giving anything to him and elevating him or lifting him up or building him up. That Christopher Robin almost exists to be just a source of his own personal pleasure, either either as a tool for his own comedic relief or as a tool for processing his own childhood. That's what feels wrong and and uh, uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, we uh, one of us used the word um, "cover your ears," mothers. If you're driving in the van with your children right now, one of us used the word "masturbatory" in our pre-discussion, and I think it. Maybe I'll cut this out, but I think it's worth maybe bringing up because that's what you're describing. It's this this self-indulgence that just feels utterly self-relating and weird. Self-gratifying. In the whole tone between him and his child is just, oh, look at me, I'm a dad, kind of condescending to my child. And he's silly, but hey, I'm going to tell him a story. And look, this is all nice. And it's a cute story. Look at how much smarter I am than my child. But... And more clever. In my experience with my children is even my little three, four-year-old Henry, he knows when I'm talking to him in that way. Uh-huh. He knows when I'm not taking him seriously. Yeah. yeah. And you got to give children the dignity of taking them seriously. They're young men and women. And that's the difference. And this is why I, I think I wanted to start by comparing. That's the difference between Milne and so much other great children's literature. It's like, you know, it is what you talked about with Lewis. You know, Lewis... When oh, you, I, I when, loved him because when yeah. you read Lewis, you feel like here's a grown up and he's he's giving me dignity and he's taking me seriously. He's letting me in and he's you know and I'm a part of this. Like I get, I'm entering into this story and I'm getting these asides and I'm seeing things because he's he doesn't think he's not patting me on the head and telling me someday when you're older. He's telling yeah. you now. Let me tell you this thing. Right. Yeah, that's the sense you get with Tolkien and with all these yeah, great and that's children's great. storytellers. And children, my kids love that sort of thing, and they they crave yeah. that sort of thing. They want so much the approval of mom and dad and the adults around them. They want to, part of why they want to grow up is because they want they want to feel like they're, I don't know how to put it. They want to be given the dignity of, of that sort personhood. Of yeah, yeah, of personhood, and not something that's created like we were talking about with this idea of childhood and mm-hmm. that and so that whole sort of sickly sweetness and then the way that that just pretty much lies about their relationship as father and son because we all know that's not true he, because his, history tells a different story yeah history tells a different story he, yeah. his name was billy by the way i mean he was that's what they called him they didn't call yeah him. they really wanted his name to be billy right i think that was actually his nick like he went by billy yeah his, his name was christopher robin but he went by billy and so i don't know that's just an example of how it, how the whole story was sentimentalized yeah and so children want this the dignity of being given personhood in their stories and so they're not really given that with winnie the pooh <laughs> <laughs> they're seen as humorous little less being uh, not lesser being huh well the only thing i would maybe say in milne's defense is that he seems to kind of just be an equal opportunity hater like he thinks adults are pretty stupid too (laughs) rabbit and eeyore and well yeah you know this this gone in the wrong direction to where it becomes perverse is um with the little prince Mm. 
And that's like, I mean, that's that's getting close to like pedophilia yeah. feelings yeah. in that book, where you have the adult in a corner with the kid saying, I know you're a child, and I used to be a child. Well, the trick of Lewis and, and just, Tolkien is that they can condescend in the in an appropriate way to kids and still maintain their authority and their separation as adults. Yes. A lot of more modern or more fruity authors. And there's nothing wrong with condescension, as a really good article on Warhorn has yeah, shown us. A, Go look it up. Yep, fantastic article. Um but this kind of condescension is where the condescender really sees themselves as superior to the, like, so much so that it's not even about the one they're condescending to. With the sort of stuff you get with Lewis and with Tolkien is they're condescending and they're going to tell the children a really actual good story that they all enjoy mm-hmm. in a way that the children will be engaged with and, and that Tolkien and Lewis actually really, truly enjoy. I mean, you get the sense when you read their stories that they, these are stories that they love. Mm-hmm. And other than the fact that it makes him laugh, I don't know if Millen actually loves these stories. <laughs> no, well, he came to hate them in his later life, yeah. so... There's one clue. Yeah, yeah. Thing. It's like Milne is uh, Milne is Emma. Yeah, and the kids are missing. He just never grew up. Another way to maybe think about it, and maybe we're just done, and we should just be done. But another way to think about this is: okay, your kid crawls in your lap and says, "I want a story. Tell me a story. Make up a story." If you made up one of these Milne stories, what would you be doing? Okay, sit up here while I make fun of you for twenty minutes, and then I put you in bed. You don't know how to spell. <laughs> <laughs> that's, I mean, that's basically what you would be doing, right? But if you actually wanted to, like, tell a story, you'd you'd dream up a world where there was kings and knights and right. ogres and dragons and wolves and or whatever it is, you know. And, and you may put, you may tell the story of Christopher Robin. I may tell the story of Ian or the story of Peter or Lucy or any of my other kids. Oops. <laughs> Peter and Lucy. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, well. Hashtag but, dramatic irony. But, 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 but it would be big and engaging, and it would be, you know, the first thing I would know is, okay, I have to have a villain. Right. Right? Like, there has to be evil. Otherwise, it's not going to be interesting and, and compelling. Well, and, the one thing that you know about kids is... In- that I remember from being a kid is you you want to be bigger. You want stories about bigness and about, you know, I think I've said it on the podcast before. I always hated the character of Robin in, in the Batman stories because I don't want a surrogate for myself. I don't want to imagine that I'm Batman's dumb kid sidekick. I want to imagine that I'm Batman. You know, I want to, I want the story about heroes and villains. And yes, I agree with you is all I'm saying. So in summation, Brandon. In summation. Wow. Do we give this the bookening seal of approval? This book? Oh, man. Not as children's literature. <laughs> but yeah. Just as something fun to read with your wife. When something fun to read, yeah. And like Jake said, it, the best value of this book is that if it makes you want to read out loud to your children, then you could do worse. Yeah. You're not going to... It's not going to... For every them. bad thing we've said about this book, it's not going to turn your child into a postmodern hipster. I think <laughs> it. I think it has a little bit of just like a snack you know it has some some smgs what's 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 a bad thing that's in a snack that your body has to digest msg um yeah but what's 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 an actual is msg actually one of those it's about artificial sweetener or something i think i think there's some things you should be careful about in this book there's some gluten (laughs) you know um there i think it can teach a kid to be smug just like all ironic comedy can teach you to be smug if you indulge yourself in it too much if 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 you come to see i mean just like you can you could end up reading jane austen the bad way and just thinking you know i'm i'm actually better than everyone cuz i'm i'm lizzie and i get it and me and jane we get it nobody else gets it and that's kind of the sort of attitude that milne has is you know everyone's dumb and 
you and I, reader, were in on the joke. And that's an attitude that obviously uh, when I said I don't like irony, that's that wasn't true. I was being ironic for those of you that didn't understand. Um, I do enjoy irony. We use it on the booking all the time. But you got to be careful with that kind of stuff. I think there, I think there's some... I think it could corrupt your kid, Brandon. Whoa. I don't know if I will give it the the booking seal of approval. Well, I guess if it corrupts your kid then you're in that way, it's because you were the kind of parent that would make your child feel smug for the fact that you read to them Winnie the Pooh so that when they grow up to be a teenager, they realize, oh, my parent was the kind of parent that read to me Winnie the Pooh, and so now they're going to be smug. So a lot of it was your fault. Right. <laughs> Hashtag homeschool. Um. <laughs> I'm an anglophile. Right. <laughs> I'm an anglophile, bibliophile. So you can have fun with Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, Winnie the Pooh's yeah. fun. I'll yeah. give it. I'll give it the book. I, hey, I you know I enjoyed it as an adult. Yeah. I liked it with no kids that I was reading it to. I Just give it my I'm, slightly qualified seal of approval. Yeah, it's a slightly qualified seal of approval. But hey, it's, it gets the, it's fun. But if you think it's anything more than fun, then you're just being silly. All right. It, you, you heard it here. Uh, you're a silly little willy old bear. Yes. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. You're a little silly. A uh, very little brain. Yeah. A bear of very little brain. Um, so it gets the official bookening, our first ever slightly qualified seal of approval, the SQSOA. The SQSOA. SQSOA. Congratulations, Milne. You get the SQ. Not as, it's not as good. It's not as prestigious as the SOA. Better than getting trashed. Better than getting the... Getting the tea. What's the name of our? Getting the tea. Getting the tea. Did Faulkner get the tea? We never decided. We never did decide. What do you think about Faulkner, Brendan? Man, I don't like him. I think he's a snob. Yeah, I give him the tea. <laughs> I give him the tea. <clears throat> well, thanks for listening, listener. today was written and produced by Nathan Alberson. It was performed by that silly old Billy old Brandon Chasteen. Hey. And the wonderful thing about Jake Menzel, it's the wonderful things that he does. He's the only one. And me, Heffel... Heffel Alberson. Heffel Alberson. <laughs> I was trying to make a portmanteau. I guess that's the best we can do. <laughs> You can also find uh, Warhorn Media at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all under the handle at Warhorn Media. And that's about it. Thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed our thoughts on Winnie the Pooh. And have a wonderful day, listener. Brandon, catchphrase, go. We love you, silly old, willy old listeners. (laughs) We do love you, silly old, willy old listeners. Happy reading or something. Jay, catchphrase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>